Welcome everyone to What's Happening, a weekly podcast bringing you Bitcoin mining and mining related content. I'm your host, Cassie Clifton, and thanks for joining me today. Once again, I wanted to give a quick little shout out to Bitcoin 2020 before we dive into today's show. When you go to any conference, it should be equal parts high quality content that gets your wheels spinning and equal parts high quality conversations among attendees. But the best conferences are also fun and highly interactive. Bitcoin 2020 is all of the above. It's Bitcoiners serving Bitcoiners to bring them together in both fun and impactful ways to continue fueling this revolution. Whether you're looking to meet your fellow peers from the mining community or learn more about new developments in Lightning or Bitcoin sidechains, there's something for everyone. It's also priced to be one of the most accessible and affordable Bitcoin events in the space so that anyone can participate. Tickets are only $200 until February. And if you haven't bought your ticket yet, you can pay Bitcoin for $50 off. Or if you're trying to hodl your sats, you can use my discount code CAST20 for 20% off at checkout. You'll find the code and a link to the event website in the show notes. And back to our interview here. So I've got some true innovators here with me today, Pavel Morovitz and Jan Chapik, who co-founded Brains back in 2013 together. Brains is the exclusive operator of Slushpool. Slushpool, which dates back to 2010, is considered both the first and the oldest pool in existence. For those of you who don't know the origin story of Brains, Pavel and Yen discuss how they got connected, as well as dive into experiences that led them to take over Slush's reins from the pool's original founder and prepared them to scale it into what it is today. Pavel and Yan share the belief that just as Bitcoin is a transparent open source project, Bitcoin mining should be also. In an effort to address the issues of transparency, standardization, efficiency, and security across the Bitcoin mining stack, Brains launched the first open source Bitcoin mining project, Brains OS, in September of 2018. Today, you'll hear how Brains OS, or BOS, originated, the progress they've made on this open source firmware project, and what this new level of transparency enables by giving the miners full access to their hardware. We also discussed their efforts towards greater efficiency and transparency at the protocol level with the implementation and features of Stratum V2. I really enjoyed this one, and I hope you do too. So let's go ahead and dive on into it. Pavel, Jan, how are y'all doing today? We're pretty good. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, great. Uh, good to hear, good to hear. So I, uh, Christian was telling me that you had a your holiday party this week. Um, that sounds like that it was a lot of fun, yeah? It was, um, but it was a little intensive, I would say. Was that, that was last night, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like uh, nearing the end of the day there for you. So I'm sure that you're, uh, yeah, it's, it's Friday and, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to get some good rest this weekend. Do you have any fun plans for the holidays? Most of it, the family. With the family, I'll yeah, likewise. Leave tomorrow morning for skiing. Oh, that's exciting! Last chance before uh, before the actual Christmas, so it's a last second decision, and really looking forward to get outside of city. Well, that's exciting. Um, I yeah, I definitely get that. Sometimes it's nice to just kind of get away from from civilization for a little bit and and uh, be outside and out and about. Um, so the last time that I saw you guys, we were in uh, Shangdu at Miner Summit, and you guys had this really, really awesome um, after party. And I have to ask because I heard different stories from multiple people. Um, did you have beer imported there, or did you just find a bar in Shangdu that already had Czech beer? <laughs> uh, no, it, it was a random coincidence that we found a place uh, serving Czech beer, and once we saw it, it was an immediate. Uh, thing that we have to make some uh, party there. But we were trying to uh, convince people that we actually did the full import and everything. Like a joke, okay, I think that's explained right away. It was yeah. a special bar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that had to be really expensive for, for an after party, especially with um, how, how much people, how fast people were going through that. <laughs> yeah, we were thinking like, what's so special about us coming from the Czech? And we were thinking beer is the, you know, the note that we should really try to communicate that we are about the beer. It's yeah. a cultural thing. So definitely like an icon of, of Czech culture. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember you guys were really, really excited to see the pandas. Um, and unfortunately I wasn't able to go, but um, did you enjoy, enjoy seeing the pandas? Well, it was my first time seeing it oh, really? live, so yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Um, I think we'd even gotten into a, a random discussion about how, uh, you know, you might be considering a, a panda logo for a slush pool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, if, yeah, if somebody playing. said this, uh, it it had to be a joke. <laughs> no, no, certainly. Yeah, no, I'm just playing. Um, all right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, dive in. I know that both of you come from uh, software backgrounds, but I'd love to kind of hear about like your experience um, working towards creating the first mining pool um, and how you two met. So I will try to start and probably cover the uh, the other part of the story. 
Uh, we've met uh, sometime around 2005-06 when uh, I graduated from university and we basically met in my first job. Uh, it was actually an unfortunate uh, job because we were working on mainframe computers. So it was like a big disappointment for a graduate from a, a university where you're used to using like modern tools and then you're pretty much back to the punch cards, even though they're like on your terminal. So that was like a half year experience and both of us found out that this is not where we would like to spend our careers. Um, and that's also <clears throat> where our careers parted because I was a lot into embedded Linux and operating systems. So I started working for, for a company called Cisco who, who did embedded Linux and I started consulting. So maybe Pavel can cover up the beginnings again from his perspective and then we can continue from there. Yeah, sure thing. Yes, as uh, Jan mentioned, we, we departed a bit and I, I focused more on like larger systems, uh, uh, mainly in uh, finance. I spent even some time uh, with uh, discrete optimization, things like scheduling crews and stuff like that, with, again, in, in some uh, larger systems. And after uh, getting to, uh, after being hired to run a software development team for one company, uh, I called Tian if he would like to join us because I, I wanted to build a, a good team and I, I knew from uh, past experience that uh, Jan is a great engineer. So we joined forces uh, again for uh, an employer and then we decided that we don't want to work for uh, anybody else anymore. So we created a company together and since then we uh, we are having brain systems together. Um. Maybe I can continue from here. Uh, the, so the company initially was doing actually embedded software. So for jet sets, uh, basically writing firmware for you know, controlling engines and stuff like that, because it was close to what I was doing. And we actually had a, a, a project that would pay off for the development. So we started that. And sometime around 2013, uh, we got involved with the pool where uh, Marek or Slash, who started the project, uh, was uh, already tired from running running the pool himself because it was just one man show. It was uh, a small garage project, basically nothing that you can call uh, like a professional great thing. But it was an invention at that time. Uh, so he wanted to move on and started working on Trezor, and he needed somebody who would be trusted and reliable. Uh, and since Pavel uh, is uh, Marek's um, friend and schoolmate from childhood, pretty much, uh, he just decided to work with us. And we basically built uh, or scaled the pool to, to today's dimensions uh, and turned it into a professional project uh, exclusively operated by Brains. Pavel, can you add anything? No, I think you covered it pretty nicely. We, we spent years and years together with Marek during our uh, younger years uh, before he went to college to different uh, city than uh, I went. So we had a lot of years together. Uh, so it was pretty easy call for me to, uh, to get into the Bitcoin. And, and so I was introduced to Bitcoin through Marek. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, um, when you're starting a business with someone that you've been friends with and like vetted in a sense of like you've worked beside them and, and know what their like what their strengths are and their skill set and their their experiences and background, um, it, I feel like it's very very easy to work together and be super dedicated in, in what you're doing. Um, yeah, it is even funnier because right now we are having more and more people from our past. Uh, we have a we have two guys who I was working for in one of our one of my jobs before. So my boss from original one of the one of the companies is right now part of our company again because we have a long years of experience working together, uh, knowing each other. So yeah, what you're saying is completely right. Once you have this experience, it's invaluable, basically. Absolutely. Um, I am curious to know how long after um, Slushpool's existence did the next uh, mining pool come into existence? 
Hmm. I think it was pretty short. Like I, uh, it's a tough question because we were not involved with the pool at the very beginning. So I would assume that the first pools were probably sometimes 2010 already or 2011. Well, maybe. My guess would be months. Yeah, yeah, it was followed because the concept was discussed uh, in a Bitcoin talk forum. So people knew the concept and uh, slash pool happened to be the first, uh, you know, accepting the, the, the concept and trying that it actually works. But I'm sure there have been multiple parties already working on something very similar. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I feel like with, with, you know, having that discussion there and then kind of like seeing the first, uh, you know, actual proof of that of that project and like putting it in like taking it from theory into practice and like seeing how that worked um and then you know what the opportunities are there i'm sure that a lot of people were very eager to to hop on that train and and be one of the earlier movers and shakers of of the pool space um so of course uh before we dive into uh creating stratum v2 um and uh the brains os software uh or firmware I think that we have to have a better understanding of, of really what the motivations were behind uh, both of those. Um, and we can't do that without talking about uh, ASIC boosts and uh, AMP lead. <laughs> so, right, naturally, I'm sure this is a part of all of these conversations. So I think that background story, though, um, is so, so important because it's like really the aha moment um, for at least anyone I've spoken to who hears this story for like why this is so necessary for the space. Um, so I'd love to just hear uh, about your experiences with uh ASIC boost and we'll start with ASIC boost. Okay, uh, I I can try covering the 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 fairy tale behind this. Um, somewhere around uh, 2017, we have been actually working on a, a firmware or testing a firmware at that time for Dragonman's T1s, and the business deal didn't work very well. And we actually had uh, a firmware written for a, a piece of hardware that was not popular at the time. So we were thinking, okay, let's let's have a look at uh, what's the most popular firmware and what can we do with, with it? Uh, what is the most popular hardware in, in the industry, which were the S9s at the time? And we actually converted this piece of software into eventually Brains OS. Uh, with a primary support for S9s. And we were interested, like, what is the deal with ASIC boost on S9s? Uh, like, people have been talking about it. You could read, like, stories uh, in Bitcoin Talk Forum about that. And basically, everybody was, like, failing to ha have it working. And but, but there were some rumors that some people are able to get it running. So we really started investigating what, what the cause is. And we found out that the, 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 the factory firmware, as it is, uh, it's actually capable of doing it on an S9, but the problem is that the results that are coming out of the machine are garbage from Bitcoin protocol perspective. They were generating invalid blog headers. I was like, okay, so how difficult would this be to, to fix this and have support in BrainsOS for ASICUS right away? And we found out that the, the basic obstacle was that a huge piece of uh, software logic is actually encoded into something that they call FPGA. It's a, it's a component uh, on the processor, on the control board of the miner, that does some pre-processing of the work that is actually sent to the physical mining chips. And the, lo the, the logic in this was broken. I don't want to say it was intentional or not intentional. So we were trying to figure out like how to get this fixed. And the only way how to fix it was because specifically this part is difficult to reverse engineer or you can do it very easily it was more simple to actually write it from scratch but at the same time we published a report uh on medium.com uh about our findings about the analysis basically claiming that if uh, a bitmain actually fixes the, uh, the the firmware and this component we can reuse it right away for brain service and we would have uh support for for ASIC boost from from day one but the, i think the most annoying thing about the whole ASIC boost story is that uh, you, as a user or owner of physical machine, you were not allowed to use all its features, uh, which I think is uh, very annoying. Basically, it would just make you waste about 10 or 13% of uh, electrical energy. Some people confuse ASIC boost with something that you're actually gaining extra hashes. Uh, it, 
in a way, it, this can be done, but uh, the primary thing is with ASIC boost is that you're saving energy because the chips are not using all the circuitry, uh, which can be deactivated and not consuming the energy. And then you can use your energy budget uh, to actually overclock your device, and then you're getting more hashes. Um, does that yeah. answer your question? Maybe Pavel has more insight because I'm maybe too technical in this. No, I think that was I think that was a, a great explanation. And, and Pavel, I definitely want to jump to you, um, but just to kind of like uh, add to that with some of the conversations I've I've had in the space. Um, I think what you say there is just is so spot on in terms of like you buy this equipment and it's not yours. And that was something I didn't really um, truly understand until I had a couple of conversations with miners in the space. Um, and that overclocking uh, is really important. And you know the the idea that um, some of the miners that I've spoken to, they're like, you purchase this hardware hardware it's now yours but you can't modify any of its um, factory settings and then they go into hiring hackers to override their firmware um so I, it's yeah um i think what you said uh Jan, at bitcoin 2019 last year if you don't own your keys it's not your bitcoin if you don't own your firmware it's not your miner yeah that's uh, something that we believe in i mean uh, considering that the whole bitcoin space is fully transparent and open source it's kind of weird that the mining part which is actually the, the in a way, it's the most important thing because it's actually securing the blockchain doesn't have this transparency, which I would assume may uh, represent a certain level of security risk. What what can happen if somebody can exploit some some you know global bug or even a backdoor and shutting down the hash rate? I don't know. I mean, now we already have multiple manufacturers, so the probability is not that high, but they kind of keep going in the same steps as Bitmain did. So if you look at uh, what's minor and or others, uh, they don't provide that transparency and they're trying to hide it behind the fact saying, oh, users are not experienced and we want to prevent them uh, damaging the equipment. So we're actually protecting them by not giving them the full access to the device. Yeah, there is one aspect related to uh, openness of the firmware or uh, the device and it is for me personally, I don't think it is necessary that the vendor provides open source firmware because you can always uh, prefer to have, for example, better functioning software, but it's paid, whatever it, it's, it, it can be, uh, it, it can be useful. But the, the problem is if the miner don't, if the miners don't have an access to the device so that they can use their own firmware, the firmware of, of their uh, selection on the device. And so locking uh, the actual physical miner uh, and preventing users to flash their own audited firmware or selected firmware, that's, that's the main pro problem. Uh, we can see already in the space uh, paid firmwares doing some uh, tuning, for example, and it's perfectly fine. If, if the miner has the capability of choosing, okay, I'll use this firmware or that, that firmware, or I'll uh, use open source Rains OS, uh, the choice is the critical thing, not necessarily the openness of the firmware because there can be an open alternative. I think the choice is... Um just having a choice that exists rather than being forced into like a singular option um, is a theme yeah. throughout Bitcoin. And you see that in like, you know, with privacy as a choice as well, but it's another, another side tangent. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you can use uh, custodian exchange, no problem. Uh, but it, you, you are doing it uh, based on your decision. Uh, and this is exactly what you, what you said, the, the option of, uh, changing uh, things. It's a, a core value. Um, maybe just, uh, again, uh, two a little bit technical comments on uh, the accessibility of the provided hardware that is currently in the market. Um, the manufacturers don't seem to get this and they really even firmwares that they were providing originally for S9s, the newer updates actually lock you out so you cannot log into the miner anymore and you can just use it from the outside by the API and, and by the web interface, but you can't just do any changes. And lately they also added like signature checking. So the, the firmware image, so Jivil takes to this is that, okay, I take Brains OS and I upload it through the website of, of the miner and upgrade it to firmware that I like. But what they did, they actually added the signing 
which prevents you from from uploading the firmware, which from software perspective uh, is okay. I mean, any Linux distribution, any Windows system, whatever, whatever downloads any updates, make sure that it downloads updates that are signed and are authentic. But at the same time, uh, as an owner of the device, you should always have the option and in this case, you don't have it. You always have to find some exploits. There are groups on Telegram that are actually exchanging information how to exploit the, the current firmwares for for uh, end miners uh, so that they can actually upload the firmware that they like. So this is the problem. We also have this protection in BrainsOS, so we don't allow, when you do upgrade of BrainsOS, we check the signature of the image, but it's for protection against it's viruses, but if the user decides I don't I don't like BrainsOS anymore, they want to wipe it uh, out and replace it with factory firmware. They are free to do it because you always have the option to log in and or whatever use some mechanism. So so these are like different approaches, and they are trying to hide uh, the intention to you know cut you off by saying okay we're actually protecting you, which is not uh, truth. Right. And like in a world that we're like in, in trying to create this decentralized world and like what Satoshi's original vision was, is that the miner has the authority. So the miner should have the authority for that authentication on, on that level and in that choice. Um, and I think that that's super important. And I've yeah definitely read a lot into like um, in the forums of people complaining about not being able to um, upload firmware of their choosing onto the onto their hardware and um, and then complaining and like not truly understanding like what the um, what the main issue was is that the the manu- on the manufacturing level um, that they weren't uh, being allowed to do that. But similar case with like um, like your private keys, like you have like right, you have authority over your keys, um, and only when you grant someone else authority to do that. But the miners didn't necessarily grant that; they had no option. An analogy of this would be an exchange that would that would not allow you to actually leave the exchange with your with your coins. Saying, yes. okay, just use our wallet and that's all you can do. You can sell the coins, you can deposit cash, but you just can't move your coins to your to your own hardware wallet. That's kind of an analogy. Yeah, absolutely. That's a yeah, a better a better way to phrase it. Um so uh before we uh dive into Brains OS, because I know you guys have um a lot of exciting things going on over there and uh, a lot of milestones that you've been hitting. Um when we talk about uh, getting into the firmware and, and like your idea um, and your vision is creating an industry standard and in mining software um, across the whole stack. And that really started with uh, Stratum V2. So um, ASIC Boost being part of the motivation there um, and also Antbleed, I believe, right? Yeah, I can speak to the Antbleed adventure. Uh, that was, uh, an Antbleed was for us another, I would say, motivation or confirmation that the the path that we decided to take was developing an open source firmware uh, as a baseline for for miners who want the transparency uh, is a good decision. Uh, So the, uh, I I wouldn't say that uh, Endblade would be anyhow related to to Stratum V2. Uh, The motivations for Stratum V2 were, from our perspective, mostly technical and, yeah, technical technical and based on security concerns and efficiency gotcha and stuff like that um, but so um just to like give people a better understanding um if you were to uh i know that you've been collecting lots of information and feedback from um like on the various software stacks that are available um as a large part of like building out your roadmap and, and designing a lot of the features um i'd be curious to know what some of like the larger um, inefficiencies that have been cited by mining farms are even outside of uh, outside of the authentication layer for firmware. The first obvious thing is uh, the amount of data you need to transfer from pool to miners and back uh, during the mining process. It is like completely outrageous uh, inefficiency right now uh, using text-based uh, data and and the. If you imagine that there is, for example, a half million connections uh, to a pool uh, pumping data in and out every single moment because uh, mining is online, thank you. You always need to exchange information. Uh, then you can imagine that the scale of uh, inefficiency can be really high. So this was uh, the first thing we uh, 
it it was triggered by uh, the amounts of data and some other um, like implied inefficiencies. Once you have to send a lot of information, it takes you more time. So uh, the timings are worse than uh, if you don't have to send uh, this the same uh, this large amount of data. There are assumptions about how how mining works in uh, V1 or how to say it in in general terms. Everybody knows that uh, once in hal uh, in four years uh, the halving happens and the block reward is uh, is halved, and people assume that transactions will pay or will will give you more value. Like transaction fees will. Uh, proportionally be more valuable than uh, block rewards in time. But the original mining protocol was not taking into account the fact that everybody needs to work on blocks full of transactions from the like zero second uh, moment. Uh, so what ha what's happening right now is you can see empty blocks mined uh, once in a while. And Stratum V2 even tries to solve this, looking forward uh, to, or looking into the future uh, towards a moment when it's critical to mine always full blocks. It's great for Bitcoin uh, in general, like having full blocks uh, means pumping transactions to the, or confirming uh, more transactions. But even from mining perspective, it's more efficient if you always mine full block. I was just uh, going to ask, um, how is it that you're uh, solving for this problem? Uh, multiple things, uh, but the nice, the, the most neat trick, what uh, what certainly to does is it allows you to communicate future blocks to the miner before it is needed. So what you can do as a, a pool, uh, you can analyze uh, basically mempool. Uh, you know that uh, miners are preferring uh, more uh, like transactions with higher fee and smaller transactions because uh, they can get the most value out of uh, mining these transactions. So you can analyze uh, the mempool, uh, guess what what uh, transactions will be mined in the next block, and use other transactions uh, to like prepare a next block. And you can communicate through V2 to miners this. Uh, template of a new block even before the currently uh, finding block is actually found. So once the block is found, you can easily distribute the information. Hey guys, start uh, mining on this already prepared uh, full block. This is a, this is the core trick. There are some optimizations allowing uh, these things to be done efficiently, but this is the core thing. So um, now we're kind of getting into the, the conversation of um, work selection, which I know was a large part of uh, Stratum V2. Um, and I know uh, BetterHash played a large role in helping to conceptualize what Stratum V2 would be, right? Yeah, you're very well informed. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we, um, we dive into, into that, um, I would like to help explain a little bit better um, the process of, of work selection. And I know you kind of just went into that. Um, but so as a pool, uh, what you guys are creating with Stratum is that the pool is no longer responsible for selecting the block template, right? Um, which would enable the miners to select it on their own. What does that process look like? Um, and then what happens like if the miners block template that they've selected is invalid? Oh yeah, the, it's, it's a tricky tricky situation because you would you as a pool operator you would like to get uh, or give the users the miners uh, the free choice of transactions but at the same time you are validating the work and based on the work uh, you're paying uh, the miners for their work but so you have to have you you have to be sure that the works is valid it would create a a valid block accepted by uh, the network. So we, what we did is just a protocol for the miner and pool to exchange uh, the actual content of the block, uh, what is the miner mining on, but in an asynchronous manner uh, so that the miner can start 
to mine on the block immediately. And within a couple of seconds, they can exchange enough information uh, to double check that the work would be uh, really uh, valid. And if the miner is not cheating and actually building proper blocks, uh, it's 100% efficient. Uh, but if uh, if a pool can detect that the miner is working on an invalid block, uh, you can basically do some kind of uh, punishing the miner by taking some some uh, money back or things like that. But in in the cooperative uh, scenario, there is uh, the whole thing can be hundred percent efficient. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, in like a, a, a very simple broken down version, more or less um, the miners um, themselves now have the ability to choose the block template. And at the same time um, that they would begin hashing, you're verifying those block templates so that they make sure that it is uh, a valid block template. Um, and then from there, they like that is in their hands, right? Yeah, there are like two two different versions of verifying work. One is only checking that the hashes are correct, uh, and this can be done very fast. There is uh, almost no information needed uh, to exchange, so the pool can double check the hashes from uh, second zero, and after that, uh, the full block template uh, checking occurs. And the Critical thing, this is a simple idea. It is not a rocket science. The the difficult part was how to make this scalable in a larger setup. Right, I can imagine. And in running 100,000 machines, uh, not every single machine uh, can exchange information about full block. You would be DDoSed by by your customers if you're uh, trying to do it naively. So the complexities are how to make it so efficient that everybody can use uh, the feature and still uh, not kill the pool. Right, that was what was most um, ambiguous to me was understanding how all of them are able to be verified so quickly um, in that given time frame. Uh, Yeah, you cannot do that. Uh, What you uh, need to do is uh, typically set up a, a proxy who would negotiate the work for all the machines, which can be connected to uh, uh, the pool, to different nodes of the pool independently, but they can reuse the negotiated work on their mining connections. And this this allows for much higher scalability. Uh, there is even the concept of uh, having a third party, uh, which you as a miner would trust that they can they create the proper blocks and they don't uh, censor transactions and so on. And you can, you can be fed uh, these block negotiated block templates from a third party and use it, uh, use it for money on, on a pool. So th- there is a lot of centers like this helping to not negotiate it, not negotiate like a hundred thousand uh, blocks. It doesn't make sense, obviously. Right. So um, out of curiosity, what are some reasons that, um, aside from like an invalid transaction, obviously, what are some other reasons that you might see an invalid block template that would be selected? Invalid version field, you name it, any field in the block header that gotcha. is not co- compliant with the current protocol is, is considered invalid. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, double spend time, for example, there are strict rules. What the fields should look like, what, what values are valid or, or not. Uh, you, can re, you can reorder transactions. You can put in any invalid transaction, uh, double spend, referencing uh, transaction, which is uh, later in a block or things like that. There, there's a huge amount of things what can, what can be wrong, especially if somebody tries to build uh, some custom, uh, custom block. A lot of things can go wrong. So um, I'm curious to know, uh, so this is not required by the miner. It's an opt-in, right? An opt-in feature? It's, it's an opt-in feature that the miner can use. And it, the pool has to provide it. So if there are pools that don't implement this feature, then you can't just force the pool with your own block templates unless, you, unless the pool offers this negoti- job negotiation channel. 
Right. And currently you are the only ones doing so. Not even us yet, because we didn't implement the whole stack yet. It, it is pretty complicated thing. We're definitely working on that. But the, the decision to make it optional was really deliberate because as we discussed the complexity of scaling this approach, it means the implementation is not necessarily easy. And we wanted to allow people to use we all the nice features of V2 even before pools implement this most complex uh, job selection uh, part of the, uh, the whole thing. Uh, because like not having it optional would seriously harm uh, the adoption. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious to know, uh, like, like you mentioned, that it's very, very complex, and especially in um, the earliest stages of this uh, implementation of, of this uh, potential opt-in feature, what additional work would be required on behalf of the miners? I know, like, theoretically what it would be, but, like, in terms of more of, like, a time commitment for doing so, like, what, what do they need to know in order to, uh, like, if they wanted to partake in this feature and opt-in for it? For miners, uh, it's not a complicated thing, but they would have to run their like proxy server negotiating the work, we we would provide it uh, once we have it implemented or anybody else, uh, any, any other pool which would provide this feature, I'm sure will we'll even provide the necessary software uh, package for the miners to use it. The miner didn't have to run their Bitcoin D node or, and not a lot lot more things. I, I think the complexity is mostly on the pool side, which is, again, kind of deliberate because the pools have uh, the incentive to provide better services to miners, so they they should spend uh, the effort uh, providing the service and not offload it to miners. So from miners' perspective, I don't, I don't see a, a barrier. It's more an infrastructure problem for pools. Interesting. Um, and have you seen much, I mean, I know that obviously it's, it's still in, uh, in beta, um, but have you seen much demand for this or like a strong interest in the community? So far, we have been questioned about this a couple of times, but uh, overall, this is really meant as a sort of a security measure that we have the option in the protocol to do something like this, unlike the previous version of the mining protocol, which just didn't have this option. Right, like putting the authority back in the in the hands of the miner themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the long run, uh, when the block reward goes even further down after halving, miners may come up with interesting business cases where they would actually need the work selection, uh, but still having the convenience of sharing the variance or reducing the variance through the pool service so that they don't want to mine solo. So these are these miners could actually push and force to pools to implement it because they would need it to cover their business case. But it's not happening yet because everything is really in early stages and uh, we should really make sure that the concepts and things that are in the protocol are correct. Yeah, it needs to be clear that it is, we think, pretty well designed. We tried our best, uh, tried to do our best, but there is not a full running implementation so it, there is still non-zero chance that we missed some critical flaw. This is even the reason why we uh, really appreciate other people's feedback and looking into the intricate details of the protocol before uh, we, we try to ship it. Yes, so we'll see. I, I think it's mostly uh, going in a good direction and the feedback uh, was pretty positive uh, so far. Uh, even with some external suggestions. So it, it's cool to hear like, positive feedback from, from other people, especially from mining industry. Yeah, it's, it's definitely very exciting that, um, that people are excited about this feature and, and it's just its existence. It's definitely needed um, because, I mean, even if it isn't something to fear in this very moment, um, we aren't sure what the future holds. So um, I think that being prepared for that and having this option um, is, is really critical for the space. Um, yeah, I agree. So that was kind of the question about uh, on the, that, that specific feature of Stratum V2, but what about on the, um, on the manufacturing level? Do you think that they would adopt this protocol? 
Well, initially, uh, the first step uh, that I would see or we would see is that you could adapt the existing firmware just by using or deploying a local stratum proxy that would do the translation from v1 to v2 and having an alternative in the form of brains os eventually uh, the big mining farms could start pushing on the manufacturers that they really want uh, the support from from you know in the stock firmware for the protocol but uh, overall uh, there's no need to like really rush or, or anything just i mean there are ways how to use the protocol already without without uh, switching the firmware completely to v2 we actually support uh, v2 from day one uh in the new bos minor but we can speak about this later and the reason is that we want to make sure that the protocol is actually functional and doesn't have any any flaws and i mean you cannot just write a draft of a protocol yeah, just certainly desk, doesn't like, work that way. believing it works so we're, we've been using uh the, the protocol for quite a while and it, I mean, all the changes or a lot of the changes in the actual mining part uh, have been motivated by actually having the hands-on experience with having uh, a code actually implementing the protocol on the on the server side and on the on the miner panic firmware side. Yeah, implementing a draft um, and having millions of of miners uh, globally uh, implement a protocol that's um, you know more or less in still in beta version is um, probably a, a pretty pretty large security risk <laughs> um, just in, in terms of like we're not sure exactly how that would go so I, I think it's very smart to take the time there um, and, and really beta test it on your own before um, shipping it so I would also like to get a little bit better of an understanding and I know we've we've touched on a couple of these um, but on the firmware side um, what is it specifically that you're uh, so excited for about the Brains OS firmware um, compared to the other firmwares that miners are currently using? I know you've mentioned um, authentication and like greater uh, data efficiencies, um, but what other what are some of the other uh, really exciting features? I don't know if Pavel mentioned this, but uh, the the mining protocol uh, has uh, a native support for for version rolling, and what that really means is that. It has uh, header-only mining where, where the work done by the miner doesn't include that they have to build their own Merkur root. This is a technical thing, but uh, it's an actual computation that they have to do in order to prepare work that they can work on. And the problem with this approach is that it, it's very suitable for big farms where you, have, where you are running one proxy and distributing the work across my, a lot of miners. Basically, the current mining protocol uh, has quite a bit of uh, computational demand on, on the server side because uh, when the miner submits a result, the server has to reconstruct the original work that the miner was actually trying to work on and then and then eventually it can verify the result if it's correct or not. And we tried addressing this uh, in the new mining protocol that there's an alternative way which you which we call header-only mining, where we literally send only the Bitcoin header to the miner, and the miner is rolling its nonce in the hardware, and it's rolling the version field, which is another field in the header, which extends its uh, uh, search space for, for the solution. Uh, and when the miner finds a solution, when, when it sends it back to the server, the server only re redoes the SHA-256 computation to verify that it matches the target, but doesn't have to mess with the Merkle tree and build the, Merc the whole worker route again. So what that means is that the server would be faster, able to evaluate if the result is correct, and you know, with uh, new blocks being found in the network and so on, this, this is an efficient, efficiency thing. And that's probably also in a similar manner as like to how you can solve for um, the header like by hand and binary. This is also just purely in binary, right? Like you don't need any other um, like source code for this. Um, I'm not sure if I understand the, the question correctly, but the protocol itself is binary. Um, uh, but uh, where are you really headed with the question? I'm, I'm not sure what you really mean. Yeah, more or less. I'm just asking like um, is for the previous version that wasn't the um, header only version of mining, um, was that purely in binary or was it also in another language? Oh, uh, I see. Um, the data format used for the old protocol was JSON. So it, it's basically text saying like, the, here, here is this field and so on. Uh, and it has some extra data overhead. Uh, whereas it's easier if machine talks to other machine exchanging data in binary format 
where the machine pretty much maps whatever you send to it and doesn't have to do a, a difficult translation from text to binary so that it can work on the data that has been exchanged to the protocol. So this is this is the, the other uh, efficiency change, change in the protocol. Okay, interesting. I would also be curious to know, um, so that was one of the, the aspects that you mentioned of like greater efficiencies. I'd also be curious to know like, what type of uh, compatibility this will have hmm. for like um, for mining a, tools or uh, management software on that side? Well, the protocol is designed from scratch. It is designed with uh, some compatibility uh, features in a way that uh, a miner always uh, asks for a certain version or range of versions of the protocol that he's able to work with. And the, the pool response, the, the, you know, the, the overlap of the version that it actually supports. So uh, the protocol itself now includes a feature where we count on future upgrades. Another part of the protocol is that we allow uh, or we, don't, we want to support custom extensions, but not custom extensions the way they're done in the old protocol where somebody just figures out, okay, I'm going to add this message and now my, my pool supports whatever, uh, changing externals one. Uh, but this should be done in a, in a controlled way where you would register the extension with stratumprotocol.org that we have set up uh, so that people would know. And we also have reserved uh, some range of identifiers for, for uh, extensions that would be like uh, private or local or vendor specific where you don't have to tell anybody. Uh, it's kind of like the private IP range that you have in your office. Uh, like there are many IP ranges that are the same, but since they're not like routed, so publicly distributed information about these private networks, uh, everybody can like, share the same numbers without you know, interfering with each other anyways. So this is the idea behind behind uh, tracking the extension uh, identifiers. Yeah, but the cool thing uh, which is baked into the protocol is the intermediate node, for example, a proxy or a pool, uh, doesn't have to understand all the extensions because it is done in a way that uh, the software can recognize, hey, this is a message uh, as part of an extension, I don't know the extension, but there are rules set up so that you can you can either just transparently send it upstream or ignore it completely, but you don't have to understand the extensions, uh, which really improves the uh, the whole space because you you can be sure that your uh, software can run even in environment. Uh, when some custom extensions are in place uh, yeah. and things like it's just yeah no that's that's really exciting um, and I, I feel like that's like uh, moving forward leaps and bounds for for UX and UI and being able to add uh, you know an extension without having to fully um, like understand what's going on and read through it and know you know what it provides you so um, that's really really yeah. cool yeah it should help with uh, getting better information from the miners it can be hardware specific it should help with managing uh, the machines as well in the long run. Uh, there is a lot of potential uh, by using uh, properly described uh, extensions. Uh, obviously, not, not everything will happen in one month. Well, we try to set up a, a protocol which will last again for years and years. So these are more ca future capabilities than, than things used right. from day zero, but... And it, it's kind of like anything that's uh, like anything that's open source and being developed like Bitcoin's development took time. Um, and in a similar way, like getting uh, people to submit these extensions um, and, you know, review them is going to take some time. So, um, but that's very exciting. Yeah, but, but probably message that once you release the core protocol out there and if there will be machines using it, then it's really difficult to change it after the fact. So we need to nail uh, the core protocol pretty much for the, or on the first try. And these extensions can follow. So whatever doesn't have to be in the core protocol, we, we want to keep it for extensions because then you can throw away an extension and provide a different one or it's much easier to manage uh, these changes after uh, getting the experience. But 
the core thing will, I assume it will not change for a lot of years because it's so difficult to, to get people to up, upgrade to completely new stack. So certainly, um, I mean, and with extensions too, it's like you have the protocol, but then you have the, you know, optionality for, for miners to more or less create a turnkey turnkey solution based on their own needs um, without having to fully implement all of them uh, if they didn't need one or didn't want one. So um, that's very cool. Yeah, you should not need any any extension for mining. The, the, all aspects of mining and on ver- various use cases uh, needed by large miners, big uh, small miners, it should be uh, covered by the core protocol. Uh, the extensions are meant mainly for data collection, remote controlling, and, and some interesting uh, use cases built on top of uh, the mining itself. So um, have you already begun to like have some uh, extensions submitted? <laughs> no. But no, okay. It's not set up yet. I was curious. Few of them, yeah. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Yeah, I was going to ask what some, some examples <laughs> might be of, of ones that had been submitted in uh, what they enabled, but yeah, <laughs> if that hasn't started then. The, the obvious use case, like from day zero, is you want as much information from the miner as possible to actually understand what what's happening. You can see temperatures, blah blah blah. Uh, the the bigger uh, farm you are, uh, the more information uh, you want to optimize all the stuff. Because whenever you can uh, save some money because of cooling or whatever. Uh, it can help you. So data gathering would be uh, use case number one, I think. Is that something that you're working with like Chris at CoinShares and um, Apolline at Cambridge on, just in terms of like what the data gathering strategy and analysis might look like on that? <laughs> uh, we do, but it is a different kind of data gathering as, uh, as what we are, like typically Cambridge is not uh, really... They don't want to know temperatures, of course, on the mining devices. Uh, but it is uh, it is nice nice coincidence. We are uh, in discussions with, with them about providing information from pool about where our miners uh, are geographically located to help uh, research on green versus not green energy uh, in Bitcoin mining. But it is a different kind of data. Sure. Um, I was just thinking as, you know, they kind of grow their operations that they might be curious to expand into some sort of like, um, like manufacturing overview and like getting a better understanding of whether or not the like uh, manufacturer like qualities that they whatever is claimed um, as their capabilities, how close they are experimentally as they are theoretically in the lab. But yeah, it's, a, it's a cool area. Uh, the more data we can uh, get from the machines, uh, the better analysis of these sorts of things w- will be happening. And I would be really curious about uh, seeing this this kind of data process and analyze properly. Yeah, I, I definitely would as well. Um, I back in college did a lot of those types of uh, experiments on mechanical equipment, and I was always pretty uh, astounded to find how off the manufacturers data often was so it was it was usually very far off and sometimes you were just like 30 percent. that seems um like a lot you know plus or minus five percent is what they quote me at but that's not right so um yeah i would be curious to know um in general i know that obviously this uh like feature on stratum is geared at uh the potential of, of further decentralizing the space should the miner opt in to do so. Um, but in more generally, what other aspects of uh, mining centralization do you believe pose the greatest threat to Bitcoin? Like which one should we be most concerned about today um, and trying to solve the, obviously not all of them are solvable today. I, I think I have already mentioned this in, in SF, but there's quite a few people out there that believe the current centralization problem is in the manufacturing where we see already changes in the industry, but we still have uh, basically single players in the game being able to produce the the ASICs. So this would, from my perspective, this this would be an area that should be addressed on the long run. But uh, uh, 
we shouldn't be very naive about this because this is a business. So once there's enough incentive to enter the business and if it's super simple, which is not the case, and that actually proves uh, by the fact that we don't have that many parties trying to manufacture, successfully manufacture mining hardware. But when you look at the list of companies somewhere on Wikipedia that ever tried manufacturing mining hardware, it's really long and most of them are already bankrupt. So this would be an era where I would see potential threat. And like geographically, uh, when you look where the companies are coming from, it's mostly China. So we can, you know, be a little bit suspicious about the future of, of this setup. But I mean, this is how it is. I think it is even uh, some perspective perspective on centralization is uh, not covered mostly, I think. And it is, we should talk about who controls the hash rate because that's the that's the core thing what you don't want to happen is somebody having so strong influence that they can do whatever they want with the hash rate attacking the network that that's the uh, thing we try to prevent by decentralization so the the core thing is who controls the hash rate and it it Historically, it was a lot of manufacturers running their own operations and having uh, deals with the miners that they have to obey, uh, let's say. Uh, but in the long run, it can be strong financial groups running a lot of different farms. So it can be geographically spread. It can be uh, made from a lot of different uh, kinds of hardware. And still, uh, it can be just a group having uh, their hands on a lot of hash rate. And this is the, the most uh, critical thing to decentralize. But it is, at the same time, very difficult to say who is running the show and who is behind the scenes. So yeah, I, I would be... I, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. No, I, 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 would, I would be curious uh, to see who the owners or controlling persons are because it's, it's not... Uh, publicly uh, available. Likewise, um, I've been doing some research recently and, and putting a couple of like pieces of information together across the like last six months, um, and it's a little concerning. Though, like there isn't any like strong evidence to really support this um, more or less like I guess idea uh, or assumption at this point. But like we saw the in the last six months, ninety percent increase in hash rate, right? Um, and then Chris, with his report, came out and said estimated 70% of that uh, was in China, right? So there was a lot of new, uh, really efficient uh, equipment going out on the market. You see Bitmain's S17s sold out in like, what, three days? That's wild. Um, and I know that there are pre-orders, but then there's also the thought of like, there, you know, VIP, like a lot of the, at least from what I've seen, new operations um, aren't necessarily in China, the ones that are growing and, and have a need for equipment. Um, and then you see uh, like the potential for those in China who like have a, a really, really strong relationship potentially being the first to have access to those machines. Um, so it's definitely some, some questions to raise there just in terms of, of who has that hash rate. Um, is that like probably more likely than not, it's definitely not any single player, uh, but was it largely one player? So that's just... I think something that we should be questioning and thinking about. Maybe a side note that we have been noticing while visiting uh, China is that uh, already uh, some miners are considering their uh, operation in China to be uh, a little bit risky for them. So they try to diversify and actually move their, their operation out of China, at least part of it or significant part of it. So because the question with the political stability is always something that they're trying to consider. So it's interesting that they're already thinking in this way. Uh, so we could see actually some of the Chinese hash rate being sent uh, to the, you know, to the US or other parts of the world where they feel it's uh, more safe uh, for them. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a need to um, hedge against geopolitical risk in this space. Um, you know, whether or not you're in China or the US, I think that that should be something that you're thinking about, whether or not it's operations in various US states or one in US and one in Canada, um, just kind of thinking along those lines and, and looking toward the future rather than 
the you know short term one year outlook I feel like a lot of um, operations have have taken in the past. Um, but it's interesting to think I know too that there are several manufacturers who've considered coming to um, North America, especially with uh, tariffs currently and the trade war. Uh, but it would be interesting t- to see like in some ways that's definitely a good thing because it's slightly more decentralized, but at the same time, is it really more decentralized if it's still the same manufacturer just operating in a different territory? Um, so that's something that's, I think, good to think about, but I don't really know who would be coming into the space. Um, but at least I think that if we did have a new player come into the main, on the manufacturing side, um, they would at least have the advantage of not having to go through like all those massive steps in innovation that led us to basically where the current you know, non-endemic chip industry is today in terms of like being on par with iPhone or tablets and whatnot. Uh, the only problem that I would see is that even if you have the money, uh, the transfer of the technology knowledge, it's it's an IP intellectual property that nobody wants to give for free. Uh, so if, if you think about it, like uh, people say, if you want to f- build a seven nanometer foundry for the most modern chip, it's four billion US dollars. The question is, if you have four billion dollars, would you find a company, speaking of the major players that are able to, uh, you know, run this technology, would, would there be anybody willing to sell you the technology and build the, the facility for you? Uh, I'm kind of doubtful about this because I think we're really at a stage where the technology itself matters more than, and the knowledge, the technology knowledge uh, matters more than the money itself. Uh, so that's, uh, I don't think a new newcomer to the industry, it, he can take some shortcuts because a lot of things have been published and some things are already known from the designs and stuff like that. But at the same time, there are like little things that would never get transferred to you. And that, that is the competitive advantage that the existing manufacturers would still have. But I, I still see another aspect, maybe the hardware itself being uh, produced by a few parties is not the... Uh, the biggest issue, the, I think the biggest issue is what is really running inside of the hardware as a, as a, as a software where when the, when the ecosystem or the industry matures enough, and I know it's already happening, it it may really like demand from the manufacturers that they just want the like the bare metal and the miner who is purchasing a batch of miners may, for example, really demand that they want a custom firmware that they have an image of or they would refresh it. So once once the miners gain again the control over their miners, uh, things may not look that bad in terms of some potential threat or whatever, if there was some government backdoor in the, in the stock firmware of, of uh, a Chinese manufacturer. So you could pretty much scratch out all these conspiracy theories. Yeah, no, that I think that's a good point. Um, when you think about it, like there's only so much that... Uh, you know, the form factor can really contribute to um, improving and, and seeing greater efficiencies. But it, what it really comes down to is like how the, like what software is enabling the, you know, hardware components to interact and communicate with the, with the mining pools of the server with the protocol. So I think that that's spot on. Did either of you have anything that um, you wanted to uh, close with? Anything that you wanted to announce or anything that's coming up? We have uh updated our Prince OS uh, with a, with an alpha of uh, a new mining software. Uh, p- people sometimes confuse the, 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 the components of the project. Prince OS itself is the operating system, but it has been using CG Miner or its clones uh, for the actual mining. And we came to a point where it was for us unbearable to maintain this software because it was not possible to expand it. The code base itself throughout all the years that has been changed by, by the manufacturers is really messy. So we decided to rewrite this from scratch. And I think yesterday we have published uh, an SD card image uh, for an S9, which already has uh, a Brains OS running the new mining software. It is not production ready. It's sort of like a developer preview, but it already has the basic features like hashing on all hash boards, fan control, temperature control, uh, small API, and stuff like that. So we're moving towards replacing the CG miner completely in, in Brains OS uh, in, a, in a short time. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I think that's really exciting. I um, was speaking to a company several weeks ago, and um, yeah, they were having a hacker come in so that they could access um, and override the like OEM fan controls um, and uh, and whatnot. So I think that that's really exciting and 
and people will definitely be checking that out. Um, you guys have slush pool has an anniversary coming up. Is that right? Yeah. It's 10 years. Is it be... not? <laughs> 10 years. In... Yeah. It's, it's ages. <laughs> ages. Yeah. Um, well, that's very exciting. Uh, are you guys doing anything to celebrate? Oh, good question. I didn't think about it yet, but we should. You we, definitely we should. should. Yeah. We, yeah. We should do something Get crazy. Get active on but, social media. Uh, we, we were so busy the last weeks. So we, at least me, I, I didn't think about it at all. So it's a good reminder to, to start to prepare something. Yeah, um, definitely something to think about. But I'm sure that, you know, after last night's party and the last couple of weeks, um, you're probably, it's probably pretty tough to think about partying. It's funny, like towards the end of the year, like no matter where you are in life, whether you're working um, or whether you're in school and you have exams, you feel like you're always like racing towards the end of the year. And then like, the break comes, you know, the holiday break and you just like want to sleep and like rest and then you have to go right back into it. <laughs> so um, I have it differently. I mean, I'm looking forward to, to the holidays so that I can work without an interruption. There is a lot of people in the office, you know, there's a lot of things going on, but during the uh, calm holiday time, I can just, do things which are impossible to do when the rush is. So it's still working time by on a completely different level. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely a more intense level of, of focus and um, ability to kind of like let your wheels spin and, and wander off and, and whatnot instead of having to be super, you know, hyper-focused at whatever is at hand. Yeah, yeah you said it exactly. Uh, I Awesome. Um, well, uh, Pavel and Jan, thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, I know that you guys have had a, a super busy holiday break, so um, or you know time leading up to the holidays, so I hope you have a really good holiday break. Where can we find each of you and um, Brains on social media, on Twitter? We have a slush pool handle. Uh, my Twitter handle is Jan Brains. Uh, if you're interested uh, in Flashpool, just go to flashpool.com. If you're interested in some open source stuff, just go to brainsos.org. That's about it. And we have an active Telegram group uh, that deals with uh, BrainsOS and has it's like a support channel for, for the users. So any of these channels uh, can be reached through. Yeah, and I didn't remember my Twitter handle. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Well, that's no worries. There, I will put all of these and, and links to those sites um, in the episode description. So um, we'll be all caught up there. But you can find me on uh, social media at, at BitcoinCast. Um, and you can follow the show at, at What's Happening. Um, and be sure to follow and subscribe to What's Happening and stay up to date on Mining Podcasts. Um, again, gentlemen, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. It was all a pleasure. all my listeners out there for tuning in to today's episode of what's happening the what's happening podcast is a btc media produced podcast on the let's talk bitcoin network it was produced and edited by christian carolas you can find more podcasts covering bitcoin on the let's talk bitcoin network and can follow them on twitter at the ltb network for all the latest episodes the following content is for informational purposes only You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments.